Data Skeptic Podcast is a weekly show featuring conversations about skepticism, critical thinking, and data science. So just a quick note before we start this interview. In order for me to keep the Data Skeptic Podcast coming out on a weekly basis, I sometimes need to record in advance, especially when I know my schedule and other responsibilities make it hectic. Um, Thus, this interview is recorded a little bit ago, and I've been really eager to share it with all my listeners. Um, But my guest does make a couple references like last weekend or a week ago. So if you follow the chess world, just realize the timing won't quite work out on that. But for everyone else, that does not change the narrative. So please enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode of the Data Skeptic Podcast. I'm joined this week by Dr. Kenneth Regan from the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Buffalo. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the show. So I've been really enjoying over the past couple weeks getting to read your blog uh, over or your contributions to the Godel's Lost Letters and P Equal and P blog, as well as your work in computational complexity. But the topic I wanted to invite you on to talk about this week is one that, as far as I can tell, you're one of the world's leading experts on, which is detecting cheating in chess. Yes, that's right. And I've been very active in the past week, more than I perhaps wanted to be. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, how uh, serendipitous then. Maybe we can start with your background and how you first got interested in chess to begin with. Well, I was a junior player. I learned the moves at five from watching my dad play with my uncle. And uh, then at age 10, um, I discovered that there were such things as chess tournaments. And my family very graciously took me into New York City and the local chess club to play in them. And I reached to just about master strength very quickly. I was a master, I think maybe briefly before age 13, but certainly at age 13. And I was one of a number of my friends, all great people, juniors on the New York area chess scene and elsewhere, who at one point were, quote, the youngest master since Bobby Fischer. Mm -hmm. I was also invited as a panelist on the national TV broadcast of the Fischer-Spassky match in 1972 before my 13th birthday. And then I played tournaments. I got to be U.S. junior champion in 1977. And it was just absolutely wonderful thing uh, as a kid. But I did not, however, intend to go into chess as a career. Well, what made you go into computer science? I originally wanted to do mathematical physics mm-hmm. at Princeton I found physics fairly tough going as an undergrad, but I got into mathematics and then discrete mathematics, which is the mathematics of computing. And then when I went to Oxford, my advisor, was attending the Combinatorial Mathematics, Dominic Welsh, got me interested in computational complexity, and that pushed me toward computer science. So maybe we could start with defining what it means to cheat at chess. I assume we're not talking about, you know, doing something nefarious like switching pieces around. No, or having a rook in one's pocket. Right. (laughs) Yeah. What do you mean when you say detecting cheating? Well, it's a a fortunate reality of the game is not only are supercomputers able to beat the world champion, as happened when Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in the 1990s, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the 20 aughts, even uh, handheld computer programs and laptops were able to defeat humans. And that has created such a temptation, unfortunately, in some cases, for humans to consult the superior computers during what are supposed to be human-only games. 
So I might get an unfair advantage by using my smartphone to check a move or something. That's right. And people have been caught checking their smartphones in bathrooms, especially. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. So how does one go about detecting that? Well, there is a certain pattern in the moves that indicates proximity to the patterns that come about from computer programs. Number one telltale is just the strength and quality, but I look for other factors also that can distinguish computer-like play. So what is it that makes uh, computers, uh, presumably if if computers were going to play the same way humans would, you wouldn't be able to detect it. What is it that computers are doing differently? Well, one of the things is that they very rarely make a perceptible blunder. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you manage to beat a computer, and there have been, have been cases of that, then you have found something very deep in the position that appeals to your human intuition but is not easy to demonstrate via a moderate depth search. So you found something very hidden. So whereas humans make little blunders all the time, in fact, even when I'm playing, I'll realize, oh, I didn't see this idea by my opponent. Luckily, my position still holds together. Mm-hmm. So computers just never make large-scale overt blunders. There are also some stylistic tendencies. They tend to keep a lot of their options open in a position, whereas I've been able to demonstrate that humans, if they see an attack, will try to play it and force an early crisis in the game. Interesting. So can you say with certainty that a move is given by a computer versus a human? Not any one move, no. Mm-hmm. Although there are some people who will react, oh, this is obviously a computer move. However, in aggregates of 100, 200 moves, then I can get an overall statistic on how computer-like the play is. So then I'm guessing it's comparing two probability distributions? That's right. Indeed, that is originally how I conceives the whole problem. Mm -hmm. I was going to model it as a distance metric between probability distributions. One representing the computer, and this is very important, because you can't just say deterministically what is the computer's move. That depends on many variables, including the depth of search, the identity of the computer program, even how much hash memory you've given it. Mm. There's a variation there. And of course, the human being is a distribution, often fallible distribution of options. And I was uh, originally going to use a metric called fidelity, which is a distance between distributions measure that comes up in computational physics in particular. Uh, And that name was also a pun on FIDE, which is the acronym of the World Chess Federation and the idea of faith and playing in good faith. But then one of my students returning, former students returning on a visit, suggested a different distance measure called Jensen-Shannon divergence, which would solve a problem with kullback liebler divergence of being too hair-trigger in the treatment of blunders, but it lacked other technical properties that I needed, which was a great shock. So I wound up doing something highly elementary. Mm-hmm. All I do is I map given analysis of positions in a game and parameters denoting the strength and particulars of the human player. I map each chess move to probabilities as if I were painting that move on the faces of many-sided dice. And then I just treat the chess position as a roll of those dice. So I'll say, like for this player, it's a 49% chance of selecting the knight g5 move, the queen g4 move is 27%, and so on down the line. Once I do that, 
I'm able to tap into the very simple high school stats theory of Bernoulli distributions, rolls of dice, flips of coins, and uh, not only project the expected mean number of agreements, but also the projected variance uh, from the you know, Bernoulli distribution theory and thereby project confidence intervals. And since I'm estimating a sample mean, the central limit theorem comes into play. So I'm dealing with normal distribution and can use a z-score framework for my statistical projections. Very interesting. Are there certain situations that are more revealing than others? So I'm wondering, for example, in cases of a game configuration when there's one move that'll keep you alive and pretty much any other move that's going to uh, end the game for a particular player. Right. And that is actually the main statistical principle on which the equations in my model that go from the chess positions to the probabilities is based. If there is a clear standout move, then not only will the computer find it, but it is highly likely that a good human player will find it. Mm -hmm. That actually was the explanation in the incident that began my involvement. Whereas, even if you have, if you have just 10 moves in a game, where at each move there were four highly reasonable options, which my model would assign probabilities, say, between 20 and 25% for each. Yet, if you consistently select the option that shows as preferred in my computer test, modulo that it too is a distribution, then there's some variance, but less. But if you match the computer on one of four options, 10 moves in a row, that's upwards of a million to one likelihood, unlikelihood. Tell me a little bit about the training data you have in terms of, uh, I presume you've got a database of human games you can study and also moves that a computer uh, is there to, to give the different distributions. Where does that data set come from? So there are two modes of chess analysis with a computer. There's multi-PV mode where the computer is given equal depth of search to all of the reasonable options in a position. And then there's the single PV, which is the regular playing mode of the computer, where it focuses its resources on the move it thinks best and one or two competing moves. Mm. A lot of the art of practical computers when they play against each other in championships is how quickly they can prune away the suboptimal moves. Mm -hmm. Whereas for my model, I need to know the values of all the reasonable moves that a player might be considering and the general landscape or shape of the position, whether indeed, as you just said, it is a forcing position where there's only one move to stay alive or when there's lots of options and all the various grades in between. So now for my training set, I have about 10,000 games of the multi-PV data and I took those games where each player in the game was at one of the century points on the chess rating system. So chess uses the ELO rating system, which is popular. People use it for other sports, and even uh, Nate Silver's website, 538.com, is using it for National Football League teams. Mm -hmm. But in chess, the human players basically top out in the 2800s. 2600 is sort of a strong grandmaster, 2400 international master, which is what I am, 2200 master, and so on in classes of 200 expert, uh, 2000 is expert, 1800 class A in the United States, 1600 class B, and so forth. So for each of the levels above 2000, I basically exhaustively chose, and so there are databases uh, now approaching 10 million games for the entire recorded history of chess 
Uh, from those databases, I take all games where both players were within 10 or so of a century point, run those games, and I get my training data for gay rated player. And then I'm able to therefore relate my two main model parameters to strength on that ELO scale. Then supplementing this, I have a vast amount of single PV data, basically every top level game in the entire recorded history of chess, uh, over 200,000 games total. Mm-hmm. which may not sound a lot out of 10 million, but a lot of the uh, 10 million games are ones not played in, in the most standard chess competitions or played by lower players. Mm-hmm. And I also routinely screen about 80,000 games out of the world's top events every year. This is what has been codified as the screening mode. So I can get a first look at the play and relate it to distributions of tens of thousands of other performances by players of all ranks to see how much of an apparent outlier it is. Now, this is exactly the situation that I had this past weekend. There is an anti-cheating group on Facebook, and on Saturday, I noted posts about a surprise winner of a uh, tournament. And you know, whispers, when I ran the screening test, indeed, the person was on the edge of what I've coded as the red zone, saying, you know, look into this a little bit further. Um, he defeated a grandmaster almost 500 points rated above him in the last round. But when I ran the full test, which is based on the training data using the multi-PV mode, it gave a Z-score even under 1.5, let alone the minimum 2 to claim any kind of statistical significance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meaning that basically the guy had basically rolled with a lot of punches, and indeed he was dead lost against the Grandmaster in the last round, but the Grandmaster got over hasty. So I posted feedback saying this on Facebook, and it seemed to have quieted the rumors for the moment. But it's, it's actually one of several test cases for the viability of statistical input that I'm getting. The other thing is I confirmed that the arbiters of the uh, tournament had acted correctly based on the less regular information that they saw. So they don't have scientific computing resources, but they have good chess smarts and were able to observe a lot of the things about the games, the choppiness, the forced situations, the fact that he was lost against the Grandmaster, and reach basically the correct and sane conclusions. Oh, that's good to hear. Mm. I would imagine then that uh, you're never saying with certainty anyone cheated. You're just talking about the probability that this happened. And that's right. To what degree do you want to have confidence before you uh, maybe an action should be taken? That's right. So I'll tell a little bit about the about the background and history of this. Up until two plus years ago, the highest Z score that I got in cases I was involved in was about three point five, which it corresponds to 4,300 about to one odds against a you know null hypothesis, although very important. What it really means is that's the incidence of such a deviation occurring naturally among non-cheating players. And every week, there are more than a thousand players taking part in tournaments around the globe, tournaments significant enough to be aggregated on a website called The Weekend Chess, uh, run by Mark Crowther in England, whose games I can get to test for the tournaments that publish their own games on their own websites. So if you have that, then you get 4,000 
player performances every month. So if you've got 4,000 to 1 odds, if you looked at every game for a month, you'd see that happen all the time. So you have to be aware of how your sample was selected or whether there are any other factors that brought it to your attention apart from people going over the games with computers and noting a high correspondence. So my rule was that there had to be independent evidence. Now, in, in one case four years ago, there was independent evidence based on text messages uh, that had been preserved since the cell phone was used to, to transmit communications. Mm -hmm. The content of the messages could not be entered into a civil court case for under privacy reasons, but the fact of their being there and the times could be entered in evidence. And that was an independent factor. So then my input was that I had this deviation over three. There was another reason to be that it selected this performance for attention. So the full significance I said came into play. Also, I was able to distinguish uh, the moves that had on games when there had been lots of transmissions from the other games in the tournament played by this player. And that was a very clear distinguisher. The quality distinction was 3,200 versus 2,550. So certainly, apart from the confidence assertion, there certainly was that distinction. But up until January 2013, I did not get any Z-scores above 3.5. And then suddenly ones uh, above 5, tending closer to 6, tumbled out for a case of a Bulgarian player playing in a tournament in Zadar, Croatia. Mm -hmm. And that prompted me to run an open letter and write a blog post, raising this as, as, as a further level of, of problem, a really philosophical problem of what role should statistics have in, in adjudicating this kind of case. The player Borislav Ivanov has never been totally caught, although there was a wand beep on his shoe and, and at another tournament people observed briefly a wire on his chest, but he was uh, never really apprehended. He was allowed to walk out of the tournaments after, after being defaulted. Actually, he even came back for his last two rounds in one of them and was undisturbed. I have my own hypothesis, but it still is a a mark that nobody knows exactly how he how he's doing it, and of course they had the phrase "if he's doing it." Right. Let alone that when I combine all these tournaments, I get Z scores over seven. I mean, we're talking getting to above billions to one to trillions to one odds range. Yeah, that's a higher standard of evidence than even I think you were saying when we talked earlier. The Higgs boson standard is five sigma, so that's right. Fairly convincing from a statistical point of view. I mean, I was able to use the Five Sigma standard because my unit is a thousand player performances is one week of the week in chess. If 4.75 Sigma, one million is one million to one odds, then I could say that's 20 years of chess tournaments at the level we're likely to be most concerned with. And if you use five sigma, that's almost three million to one, that would be 60 years, meaning that you would expect to misclassify someone at five sigma to make an error once every 60 years. And then the question is, is that an acceptable rate of error? Mm -hmm. So then I was able to point to, well, that is the same as the standard that's used in physics for scientific discovery, but watch out. The Higgs boson has now risen above seven sigma, so that looks safe, but a video 
video announcing a gravity waves discovery a year ago mm-hmm. begins by knocking on the door of the cosmologist whose theory was supposedly verified, and the guy says, it's five sigma, but it wasn't. They made a systematic uh, mistake in their modeling of intergalactic dust. And the uh, result is, uh, well, physics today said death knell for their work in February. So, you know, that that went Mm -hmm. away, apparently. So what sort of sigma value do you think we might achieve if we entered an actual algorithm in a tournament and we let it, you know, someone just read the moves directly off the computer? Uh, yeah, then then if you if you if the algorithm played over two hundred moves, I would be pretty confident of of getting deviations above five sigma. Although oddly enough, it would not be per- perfect correspondence because my work does not try to forensically identify a particular algorithm. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's it's testing for the for the general computer like nature, and the different chess programs do not agree with each other. Moreover, when they play by themselves, they tend to get themselves into positions that have a lot more options, where even at their own level, their own projection of uh, agreement rate would be closer to fifty percent than the than the over sixty percent that one would get for the same computers playing human games. So that even makes their agreement rates look lower. It's definitely a complication for my model that the computer programs don't agree with each other to such an extent. It imposes limits, upper limits on the sensitivity. Sure. But it does seem that I get, well, the, the policy is a Z-score above 2.75. This is in I work as a commission member on the World Chess Federation and new guidelines and regulations that were approved last year. Z-score of, of 2.75 is enough to claim statistical support in a case where there is independent evidence. And a Z-score above 4.0 is enough to open an inquiry. We don't, however, though, have the right of judgment for 5.0. Mm-hmm. Um, I we we backed off that because a lot of people are understandably uncomfortable with using statistics to pass judgment alone. Statistics alone, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so I'm going to link to the open letter on chessprofessionals.org that you'd mentioned, and it sounds like right, that's the uh, January 2013. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot has happened since then. So what happened is um, is there were more incidents in the spring of 2013. Uh, including a junior player being caught with a cell phone in a loo and roughed up by his opponent who happened to be on the Romanian national soccer team. Mm. Um, and the the, chess, the World Chess Federation realized that this isn't just an association of chess professionals matter. This affects the entire game. Something needs to be done. So to mm-hmm. their great credit, they, they put resources in and convened a commission. And uh, one of the things we did, oddly enough, actually, was we loosened a reaction requirement that we feel had been too strict mm-hmm. about completely banning cell phones from playing halls. We, we put other rules in to make sure that players are not able to walk around with the cell phones during the games okay, or have them in their pocket where one player was caught getting buzzes from a cell phone on, on his thigh that he could decode. Mm-hmm. 
So we so you're not allowed to have the cell phone on your person during a game, but we don't want to completely inconvenience people by not making them able to have the cell phones with them because they might be coming from work and might not have a car that they could stow or room that they could stow the cell phone in. Sure. So I've been active on the committee and our committee uh, really constituted itself in terms of operation this year. And I'm right now writing a reformal report on one case while dealing with several others, which happily, though, they are furnishing more input into my new system using multiple programs and showing how consistent they are with each other. Very neat. So I would guess uh, going back to some of the different algorithms, you know, they could each have different databases that they're accessing in terms of finishing moves or slightly different pruning strategies or maybe heuristics baked in that account for some of the differences. But I was really fascinated by the point you made that they tend to play with much many more opportunities open at the same time. Um, do you yeah. think that's sort of the defining characteristic of computer versus human play, the ability to balance so many independent strategies? It might be. It's it certainly it gives in practice it gives me an extra five percent margin. I analogize that to the idea that computers play the role of Spock to our Kirk. Uh -huh. Like in a Star Trek episode, you know, McCoy and, and Kirk want to go in and intervene right away, but Spock cautions, wait, hold it. I I think that that's actually I'd like to see that enlarged into a useful personality aspect of personal digital assistance in general, that they're not there to make up our mind for us, but rather to show us the options. Yeah. But yes, that is a that more wait and see is a definite property of computer games. On balance, they take longer, and they uh, they don't have early crises as quickly as human games do. I'm a relative chess novice. If uh, let's say for some reason I decide to dedicate myself to the game and I started playing ten hours a day, six days a week. But rather than uh, studying by, you know, reading classic texts, looking at classic games and, and books and things, I chose to develop my craft strictly by playing against the best algorithms that are out there. Do you think I would develop a style of play that could have a false positive in your detection? Well, I'm fielding exactly this question on Facebook from someone like within the past hour. <laughs> okay, it's a common it's a common point. Um, I, it is quite possible that players have become more computer-like, and that might even be reflected in the slight increase in overall quality that I'm registering within the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're uh, – if, if I've yet to see a demonstration that someone can become really adept at the game solely by – um, playing with a computer. For players under 2,000, what is said to develop your skill the most is pattern recognition of positions and their tactics, which you can get by playing over famous games, like you know, the games played by the Russians in the 50s and 60s are, are great for this. And I agree with the contention of a documentary, My Brilliant Brain, by the BBC and National Geographic featuring women's world champion Susan Polgar, that it's the face recognition and pattern recognition parts of the brain that are activated most when we play chess. So if going over a, going over a computer is going to promote this ability, but it comes from seeing the patterns, I think, rather than contending against the algorithm. And up to uh, 2000 level, people are saying now that it's more important to understand the basic tactical patterns, you know, tactical quizzes, 
you know, flash a whole page of black to move and win, and that that is the best way to improve. And then when you get over expert level, then the deeper parts of strategy fill in. So I would imagine it's only really been possible to cheat in this way in the last, let's say, perhaps 15 years when the algorithms got to the right level and even the ability to kind of, uh, well, we didn't have cell phones quite the same way in the 90s, but now we have them very small in our pockets. Uh, I guess there were some situations where there was concern that a player was getting a buzzing to indicate the move. Yeah, there's a meme that uh, your iPad now is has the power of the world's top supercomputer from 1994. I don't know if that's quite true, but it's, it's a <laughs> meme anyway. Um, so yes, that's the problem. Actually, 20 years ago, there was perhaps what was intended as a proof of concept at the World Open. A uh, player was given the name John von Neumann, the name of a famous computer Mm -hmm. pioneer, and had a computer in his shoe, and he was caught while the tournament was going on. He was able to, I think, defeat or draw against one master-rated player. And, uh, you know, I I could say various more things about it, but that and another case in the 90s are considered to be the beginnings. But the real beginnings were whispers against uh, the Bulgarian grandmaster Veselin Topalov in the candidates tournament for the world championship in 2005, um, allegations which my work does not support. And then in the ensuing world championship match in 2006 against the Russian Vladimir Kramnik, Topalov himself brought accusations of cheating based on the coincidence of moves with the the then leading program Fritz 9, which is uh, manufactured by Chessbase. So Topalov's manager, Silvio Danilov, released an accusing letters citing coincidence statistics, but not giving any methodology. Now Mm -hmm. I actually know that he used the flawed methodology to, to generate that. I tried reproducing the results independently, and on four of the five games, I didn't. But on the second game of that match, where Topalov was winning brilliantly, but then lost his way and eventually lost the game, something which really must have upset him. I do get that on the second half of that game, reproducibly, with two different programs, Ribka and Fritz, of Vladimir Kramnik matches over 90%, which is an unheard of human yeah. percentage in general. But the reason is, the explanation I found, is that most of Kramnik's moves were absolutely forced, first to stay in the game and later the only way to keep his advantage. And that's what led to the statistical principle that I talked about earlier. And basically all of my in-depth work with the training data and the numerics and the model development have been just quantifying this all-important qualitative principle. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. Uh, I'm really appreciative that that's in your model. It's it's like, you know, with ERA, you look at baseball pitchers' ERA and you think, oh, they're all the same, whatever. But mm-hmm. no, if one pitcher is pitching in Wrigley Field with the wind blowing out mm-hmm. and the other pitcher is uh, is is pitching at, uh, in Atlanta on a clammy day, that makes a difference in the expected number of runs. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically finding which way the wind is blowing in the chess positions by using deep computer analysis in a fight fire with fire yeah. kind of way. So I certainly wouldn't ask you to name any names if you didn't want to or to slander anyone. But uh, speaking broadly, do you think that there's a, a, an undetected problem of cheating or are these isolated cases? 
I still think they're isolated cases. I mean, th there was an article in the Daily Telegraph two weeks ago with a British grandmaster saying that chess is riddled with cheating, and I've not seen that evidence. There is, I mean, as was voiced in this case over the weekend, you know, people say, acknowledge, yeah, there is a lot of paranoia about it. It is also true, I must acknowledge, that if a player is disciplined enough to do what's called smart cheating, cheating on only a few moves per game, my stats are probably not going to detect that. So then, then, the, 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 then the point, though, is that the discipline is an added burden on top of the cheating itself. Are there lots of smart cheaters out there? I've yet to see any credible anecdotal reports. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any observations of something, anything besides people saying, oh, this guy had an unbelievable result or here are 10 moves that match in a row in the game. I mean, I do routine screening of all the tournaments and I can tell you there are lots of cases of players reeling off 10 straight matches to the computer or more. Um, but there are other patterns that do need further investigation. And then the question is, you know, judging the frequency, is this excessive or not? That's a much harder determination to make. So I'm curious to understand a little bit more from your perspective on why chess has become such an interesting and I think we can call it unsolved puzzle. Um, we've been playing it for centuries and from from what I understand, the, the skill of play has evolved. We're getting better and better at the game. What mm -hmm. makes it so complex of a game when it's such, it's in a way, it's really simple game. Children, as you learn, maybe not all children learn to and achieve the levels you achieve, but children can learn the rules and play the game mechanically speaking. Um, how yeah. is it that such a, a challenging game emerges out of simple rules? Well, that's true. Well, here's where my, uh, my main professional field of computational complexity theory has an input. Mm -hmm. In a generalized format where the board could be arbitrarily large and the armies could scale up too, determining which side has the advantage in, in chess in a given position is what's called a polynomial space complete problem. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually, if you remove something called the 50 move rule, it actually jumps up to being an exponential time complete problem mm. where we definitely know there is no efficient algorithm to make a foolproof determination. Polynomial space complete imply me is a level apparently above NP hard. So if you've heard about NP and N mm -hmm. NP hard and NP complete problems like traveling salesperson problem or tautologies and logic, chess is apparently harder than that. So there is a great kernel of complexity. And yes, the, the complexity comes about from a very simple specification. It's a universal pattern in my professional field. So the thing, though, what makes chess appealing is that along with the, the relative simplicity of the rules and the complexity of what develops is a lot of beauty. You can storm the king's fortress, your, your, your pieces raking. It's analogous to battle. It gives some of that feel. The game can be really exhilarating to play, especially when you're under attack and able to put up a heroic defense. That's, that's some of the most enjoyable times. Even if you go down in flames and lose, sometimes you enjoy the way that you were able to defend. And in fact, actually, at, at, a, uh, at a game 
in the European Championship in Jerusalem in February, one of the most brilliant conceptions of all time happened, where a player just nonchalantly moved his king and let the opponent capture a rook with check. It even looks like he accidentally touched his king and had to be touch move, but it was on purpose. The other guy took the rook, and then after the guy tucked his king up one square, it was close enough to be uh, affecting an attack against his own king. And the guy just had a queen and some pawns against the other guy's king, queen, and rook, and yet the other guy couldn't get out. And it was turned into a brilliant victory. So things, things like that uh, in the lore of chess books make it a, a storied and beautiful game. Very neat, yeah. So I know we may lose a few of my listeners as we get into some of the deeper topics and sort of graduate-level topics here, but um, I've always had a passion for Kolmogorov complexity, and uh, I hope to actually cover it a little bit more detail on this show. So I was curious if you could share some of your work on how that relates to chess. Well, it's it's interesting enough. This is this is technically separate from my cheating work. Mm-hmm. But one thing, all all chess programs share many common features, uh, the, the type of algorithm, um, board representation, and they all use a hashing scheme for chess positions. They don't store the chess position in the form of knight is on f3, king is on g1, pawns on h6, etc. Instead, what they do is they break a chess position down into an, a code of under 30 bits. You first allocate primary codes of 64 bits each for every combination of, of one of the six white plus six black type of chess pieces on the 64 squares. And then you just add up mod two, those vectors, and take 25 or so bits off the end, depending on how large a hash table you've allocated. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of redundancy. Different positions will have the same code, and that could confuse the program, but in critical points of any given search, it rarely gets confused. And what I'm interested in are the Kamalgarov complexity of those bits that are used to initialize the hashing scheme Mm. and whether there is a demonstrable difference in behavior depending on whether the 50,000 needed bits are generated truly randomly from atmospheric noise at random.org or Mm -hmm. Hotbits service or whether they're done pseudo-randomly as the programs tend to do. And that makes a big change in their Kolmogorov complexity. So on the Girdle's Lost Letter blog, I wrote a post titled Digital Butterflies because I also show a digital butterfly effect Mm -hmm. where I can reproduce a mistake that chess programs make owing to hash conditions. I can isolate it to the size of the hash table and to other factors. And the question is whether this kind of difference can be harnessed in large scale to tell whether 50,000 bits are random or pseudo-random. How interesting. So you can find it just by Googling the term digital butterflies and lost letter. And uh, it's an article I wrote coming on three years ago. It references uh, George Marsalia, who discovered flaws in the pseudorandom generators that were used in the 1960s, showing that when their output was plotted in three dimensions, they had two-dimensional unwanted regularities. Interesting. Yeah, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. So just on the chance that there is a chess cheater listening who's hearing about your work for the first time, how nervous should they be getting? 
Well, uh, I wouldn't want them to be nervous. I'd want them not to cheat. <laughs> Good point. I'm hoping that the, that the, the the idea that there are sophisticated techniques beyond what they might be thinking about will give people pause, a, a deterrence effect. Absolutely. The, the one other thing is that during the years 2007 to 2011, there really were no positive cheating cases. There are a couple of negative ones where I gave the usual explanation. Mm -hmm. And so my work deepened into studying human cognition and decision making and trying to branch out to things like studying the difficulty of test taking. You know, how can you judge the difficulty of a test? Well, I can judge the difficulty of chess positions, and then can I transfer the distributional patterns that result? So there's a, there's a large component of my work that is developing human versus computer cognitive differences, and you can find on my website a, a paper from last summer's multidisciplinary preferences workshop associated to IIII 2014 in Quebec City that details some of these. And even one result that isn't in that paper shows that if you have a lot of data, even just a Two hundredths of a pawn difference between moves is enough for more humans to uh, select the better of the two moves. Differences that would seem inconsequential if you're just talking about one game mm -hmm. really do pan out over thousands of positions. Interesting. So before I ask you kind of the final questions, I actually want to go back to one topic. Uh, to my understanding, there was a case when you were tracking a potential threat of cheating, and it was actually a, a power outage that stood in the way of communicating some of this. So would you mind sharing that story? That, yes. So that was during what I was saying about the Topolov-Kramnik match. Why, before that match finished, I was all set with my conclusions of saying these games were forcing, it was an, an illusion. Mm -hmm. And I was on the server run by Chessbase. I had commentary privileges there. So for the last day on, on Friday, October 13, 2006, I was going to go online and trot out my conclusions one chat line at a time and say there was no good scientific methodology and it was gamesmanship. I was loaded for bear. But that was the the night before was the Buffalo winter October storm and it knocked out power. I was bailing basements, uh, oh, no. ours and neighbors. And by the time power was restored in the next week, the, uh, Kramnik won the playoffs. So there was no harm, no foul. And there wasn't so much a need for my input. So that's that again. Then I went back to quietly developing my work. Uh -huh. Well, I like to wind up my shows by asking my guests for two recommendations. The first I call the benevolent recommendation, a nod to a book or a research paper or a website that you think the listeners would find interesting. The second being the self-serving recommendation, hopefully something that you get direct benefit out of from appearing here. So for a book, I would recommend any of various books that are about the public awareness of statistics. So not just public awareness of science. And I can think of Jordan Ellerberg's How Not to Be Wrong and um, the book Naked Statistics. I'm forgetting the author. And also Nate Silver's uh, book, The mm -hmm. Signal and the Noise, which is you know, maybe at a higher level. And if you want to play chess, there's a chess book I recommend called An Invitation to Chess by Chernov and Harkness. Old but good, comes in and out of print, but is the book that most smoothly takes you from absolute beginner 
to uh, appreciating some points of strategy and even of beauty. And for the self-serving recommendation, of course, uh, the blog Girdle's Lost Letter and P equals NP. For understanding some of the caveats of my chess work, I would recommend my posts on that blog titled Littlewood's Law and 13 Sigma from two years ago. Littlewood's Law being the, being the realization that if you define a miracle as a million to one event, well, we have a million waking seconds every month and we <laughs> notice something every second. So therefore, everybody can say they see a miracle every month. Well, because you had to say, you know, how is it selected? What kind of miracle? That's that's where things get deeper. But that's my main caveat article against reading too much into unusual occurrences that I find all the time from screening chess games. So the blog would be, and also my website at, at Buffalo, just Google my name in Buffalo and you'll find it. Excellent. And I'll link to all that in the show notes. Well, lastly, if, if anyone wants to follow the ongoing saga of claims of cheating and the statistical analysis of such claims, where's the best place they can kind of keep up on the latest and greatest? Well, yeah, it's not. It, we don't make it very public. So again, I had to say my website. There is a closed Facebook group uh, which talks about individual developments. But uh, no, it's really my website papers, and there's actually a very good paper by. Um, uh, David Barnes, who's a known Java textbook author, and, and Julio Hernandez Castro in the Journal of Security on caveats of cheating testing, all of which, I mean, my reaction is just amen. They mention me, uh, and th they don't intend to give the impression that they're criticizing my work. It might come off that way, but my reaction is just amen. These are all the reasons I separate the screening from the full test, mm -hmm. but it, it points out a lot of the caveats very well. So that's an independent source from me that's good to read about the general problem. And they even said it in the context of cheating detection in online games, which is a potential branching out application. Very cool. Well, I want to thank you once again for coming on the show, Dr. Egan. This has been really fun okay. for me, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much.